Our scripture passage today is from Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. Hear God's word. But when the Pharisee heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is God's word. Well, good morning, Christ community. It is great to be here with you this morning. Uh, My name is Tyler, and I'm one of the pastors here at our downtown campus. And I'd like to start our time together this morning uh, with a question. And the question is this, are you a by-the-rules kind of person? Are you a by-the-rules kind of person? Do you do your best to follow the rules? Do you resist breaking the rules? Are you kind of well aware of the rules so that you can live up to the rules? Would you say that you're a by-the-rules kind of person? Just curious, are, are you out there? If I were to answer that question myself, I would have to say yes. Now, there have certainly been times that I have not obeyed the rules, right? I've known what it is, and I said, I don't want to do that. But if I think more broadly and more generally about my life, uh, I've always wanted to know what the expectations are and to meet them. I listened to my parents when they gave rules, and then a little later I listened to my teachers when they gave rules, and now I listen to my employer when they give rules, right? And I've sought to succeed and impress those over me in accordance with the rules they've outlined. And usually I encourage other people to follow the rules too, uh, unless, of course, it's past the 30-day return window at the store, in which case I become a bend-the-rules person. (laughs) Can't you make an exception for me just this once, right? But all things considered, by and large, I am a by-the-rules kind of person. I want to know what the requirements are, and I will work to meet them. But here's the thing. The hard part about being a by-the-rules kind of person is navigating all the different rules that exist because there are so many rules aren't there. There are social rules, right? How many Instagram posts can one person share in one day? Do I need to bring something to share to this party, right? Those are social rules. There are workplace rules. Does this email require a response? Uh, Should I jump in and help on this project? Or is this team gonna be all right on their own? There are family rules, right? Is this a take your shoes off kind of place? Or is it not? Do we use coasters here or do we not? And of course there are wardrobe rules. Uh, Can you wear black with navy blue? Is white allowed after Labor Day? I've heard some folks say that rule has changed. Uh, There really are all sorts of rules and as a by the rules kind of person I know that the more rules I become aware of, the harder it is for me to keep them all. The more rules that I know, it is increasingly difficult for me to live in accordance with all of the rules, to know what I should do and what I should not do. And perhaps you felt the same way. Because there are so many rules, aren't there? And sometimes those rules can seem like they contradict one another and challenge one another. And so thoughtful people trying to navigate all the rules that exist uh, have to do something to learn how to make the rules manageable. They have to learn how to navigate the do's and the don'ts. And so thoughtful people do this. They prioritize the rules. 
They lean into prioritization, people who care about what is and isn't appropriate but don't want to lose their sanity in the sea of rules. They learn how to prioritize. They decide what matters and what matters most. And so this morning as we open God's Word together, we're going to be spending our time exploring a conversation between Jesus and a legal expert, and it's focused on rules and priorities. We're going to examine a conversation about what matters most. Because in the text we'll be engaging today, the Pharisees come to Jesus with a question. And it's not a question that's engaged in finding if Jesus can recall the law. It's not a question of memory. It's a question of judgment. They want to see if Jesus knows how to rightly prioritize the law. And the answer that Jesus gives his critics is brilliant. I mean, it absolutely dazzles and astounds them. It's brilliant in both its simplicity and in its depth. In fact, I'd assert that the answer Jesus gave them has much to teach us now because Jesus suggests that what's most important isn't necessarily complicated, it's just costly. What matters most, Jesus says, when you get down to it, it isn't necessarily hard to understand, it's just, it's just hard to do. And I think that message presents a challenge to each of us this morning, inviting us to reconsider how we relate to God and how we relate to one another. And it's right here in this text in Matthew. So if you haven't already, will you open your Bibles with me to Matthew 22, 34? Matthew 22, 34. It's on page 828 if you're using one of our community Bibles. And as you're turning there, let me remind you of where we've been in our exploration of Matthew's gospel. For the past months, as we've been going through the book of Matthew, we've been watching as Jesus is encountered by critics with questions, right? We've seen critics come up with Jesus and confront him again and again with questions designed to embarrass Jesus and to challenge Jesus. Last week, Gabe taught us that those questions, they weren't aimed at pursuing the truth, right? They weren't sincere questions. The questions of the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were designed to dismiss Jesus and to discredit Jesus. If you happen to hear last week's message, you might remember that the Pharisees came at Jesus with a really tough question about how we should relate with the government. And then the Sadducees came to Jesus with a really complex question about marriage and relationships. And Jesus answered both of these questions with absolute brilliance. He navigated the complexity, uh, giving answers that astounded his hearers and silenced his critics. And so after having these two attempts to uh, criticize Jesus, thoroughly shut down, the Pharisees get together one more time. They decide we've got a little bit of fight left in us, right? Let's give it another shot. And so they get up in a group, and one with special legal training steps forward. And he says, ah, I've got an idea of how we can get them. Plan A didn't work. Plan B didn't work. But, but I think I've got an idea for how we can trap Jesus. So let me go forward. This is my last-ditch effort, but I think we can catch him and then embarrass him. And the exchange that unfolds, it's what's recorded for us here in Matthew. So let's turn to the text now, Matthew 22, 34. The text says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, the Pharisees, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. And the question was, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law. Now, this question, it's a question of priority. It's a question designed to make Jesus say what's most important. But that also means that it's a question designed to try to set Jesus up to suggest that some portions of the law aren't important. 
Because if you say what's most important, you kind of suggest some other things aren't as important, don't you? And so this legal expert, he comes to Jesus with a question of priority designed to trap Jesus because he's hoping that Jesus will say, oh, this is most important, and then he can say, ah, aha, but you've missed something, right? It'll give him an opportunity to pounce, to attack, to discredit Jesus. Now, you should know this type of question, the question of priority, it wasn't uncommon during this time. In fact, it was a kind of question that people interested in following a particular rabbi would often bring to a rabbi. It was a way that someone, say there was, you know, Rabbi Scott, and he's out there teaching, and I'm interested in following Rabbi Scott. I can come to him, and I can say, what do you think is the greatest commandment? And by asking that question, I can gain an idea of what he values most, what his priorities are, what his unique take or spin on the law is. So it wasn't an uncommon question, but this asker's motives are quite different. They set it apart. Did you notice in the text when it said he came with this question to test Jesus? This asker is not interested in actually following Jesus. He's not coming, even though so many did, with this question sincerely to a rabbi, wanting to know what's most important. He's coming and looking to pounce. I mean, think of it this way. What if a reporter today were to ask a politician, what is your favorite government agency? Right? And I'm not trying to be political or partisan here. It just feels like currently this is, a, this is an illustration we can get. What if someone came and said, what is your favorite government agency? I mean, wouldn't that answer tell us so much about what that leader valued? It would, wouldn't it? But wouldn't what that leader didn't say also become kind of fodder for they don't care about this and she doesn't value that and he doesn't like that, right? It's a question designed to trap someone. And so the legal expert, he approaches Jesus with this question. Now Jesus has a choice. How will I respond to this question? The legal expert is fishing for a statement from Jesus that he might be able to twist and use to instigate controversy. And so Jesus has to decide, am I going to respond straightforwardly? Or will I ignore this question? I mean, of the 613 laws in the Old Testament code, Jesus had to think, what, what should I pull out is most important? How do I answer this question? And I wonder what it was like in that moment. That moment after the person asked the question and before Jesus responded, I wonder if Jesus answered right away or if he dragged it out a bit. The text doesn't tell us what Jesus did or how he responded, but it tells us what Jesus said in response. And Jesus' response is brilliant and bold and beautiful. And it appears in Matthew 22:37. Jesus replied, he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And I imagine in that moment that silence filled the air because Jesus just answered this trap of a question flawlessly. Jesus summarized the entire Old Testament without leaving anything out. He emphasized what was truly most important in all of Hebrew Scripture. Jesus said, love the Lord with your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And it's profound, isn't it, even as it's so simple. I mean, what more is there to say but what possibly could have Jesus left out? It's all there and it's so simple. And I think Jesus knew his answer was perfect. I think that's why he says, uh, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He knew he nailed it, right? 
It's almost as if Jesus is saying, uh, am I missing anything? Because I think everything from Genesis to Malachi, all the texts that we now call the Old Testament, everything that had been disclosed about God and his relationship to humanity up until that point, all of it, Jesus says, is contained in those two simple commands. Love the Lord fully with all your heart, with all your mind and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. It's so simple, yet so expansive. It's so short, but it's so big. It says everything and forgets nothing. Love God and love others. Now, what's ironic about Jesus' answer is that he quotes very common Old Testament passages in his response. Did you know that the words, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all the, your mind, those aren't, those aren't new words that are maybe original to Jesus in this moment. Jesus is actually quoting a, a passage of scripture called the, the Shema. It was a sequence of Old Testament verses that we can still find in Deuteronomy 6 that all Jews would have memorized. You could say that the Shema is it's central to Jewish history and religious life. It begins with kind of these words, hero Israel, which is what Shema literally means. It's translated hero Israel. And then it contains the exact words Jesus quotes here. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The Shema, it was, it was central to Jewish religious life. In fact, it was customary for it to be sung as a refrain twice a day. So the first part of Jesus' brilliant answer is something that was very, very familiar to his audience. And Jesus' instruction to love your neighbor as yourself, it's also not something that's original or brand new to Jesus right here in this moment. It's lifted straight from Leviticus 19, which was another well-known portion of Jewish law that gives instructions about how to treat one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's Leviticus 19, 18. So don't miss this. Jesus is asked a trick question designed to trap him, right? A legal expert is trying to embarrass him. And Jesus answers his question by citing the most obvious and popular verses from the Old Testament. And it's those verses that leave his accuser silent. Jesus doesn't pick some obscure passage. Jesus doesn't get creative. Jesus doesn't make up anything new on the spot. He chooses tracks from Deuteronomy's greatest hits. He cites what are perhaps the most popular passages in the Old Testament scripture and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. He gives them two things that they've heard before, and this was Jesus's point. It was Jesus' point then, and it's Jesus' point now, and I think this is what God wants us to hear from him this morning. Jesus says, hey, what's most important, it isn't complicated. What's most important isn't complicated, but it's costly. It's not complicated, but it's costly. I think it's if Jesus is telling these religious leaders who have made their living by expounding upon the law and making it more difficult and saying you should go this far but not that far and this much but not that much. He's saying you've pretended that following God is difficult. You've pretended that honoring God is complex and rigorous and requires all sort of intellectual capacity. You spent your time debating about this law versus that law and how much and how little and this far and not that far, but it's not as complicated as you've made it. It's just difficult to do. By citing the most popular verses from the Old Testament, Jesus seems to be saying to the Jewish religious leaders, look, 
I know there are 613 commandments in ancient scripture. I get that that feels like a lot. I know that there are some nuances and some distinctions. It's worthy of studying them. But what's most important isn't difficult. And what's most important isn't going to be found in some obscure place. What's most important has always been most important, and it's always been clear. In fact, you already know it by heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. Love God, love your neighbor. It's not complicated, but it's costly. It's not hard to understand. It's just hard to do. And with those words, Jesus silences his critics. The debate ends. In fact, after he gives this perfect answer to this final question, Jesus asks them a question. It's a question they can't answer. And then we see in verse 46, uh, no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day, right from this point on, did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. And that's astounding, isn't it? For this entire book of Matthew that we've been studying for nearly 40 weeks now, we've seen question after question thrown Jesus' way by these critics. But it's this answer that ends all the questioning. This answer stops the barrage of attacks. And from that day, no one dared ask Jesus any more questions because of his simple yet profound answer, love God and love others. It left the Pharisees speechless. And church, I think it should have the same effect on us this morning. I think we should feel the same awe and respect and challenge from Jesus' words that his original audience experienced. Because as complex as it can be for us to follow Jesus in our modern world, and hear me, it is complex as we navigate cultural nuances and social pressure and the do's and the don'ts and how does this work at work and in my job and in this culture, as complex as it is, and it is complex. And as much as we as a church love to be nuanced and thoughtful in our engagement, and gosh, don't you love that about Christ's community? I do. I love that we are a thoughtful church. I really do. And that we dive into seeing how Scripture applies to every nook and cranny. What does this nuance mean and that nuance? It It is a strength of this church. So as complex as it can be to follow Jesus in this modern age, and it is, and as good as it is that we explore every nuance, and that is good, that is a strength of our church, as complex as it is and as thoughtful as we are, we must remember that at the center of our faith, right, at the heart of following Jesus, there is a singular ethic, and it's quite simple, and that ethic is right out of Jesus' mouth himself, so we're not watering it down. It says when it comes down to it, all that really counts is loving God and loving our neighbor. You love God and you love your neighbor. It's simple, it's less complicated, but it's much more costly. But if you'll do it, you won't miss a thing. If you do that, you'll be right where God wants you. When you don't know what to do, the answer Jesus suggests this morning, it's love. When you're not sure how to respond, the answer Jesus suggests this morning, it's love. When you're at a loss for how to act, the answer, it's love. Underneath all the complexity which is real and all the thoughtfulness which is good, the answer is love. Now, I want to be very clear here. To say that it is all about love is not to say that all the rules don't matter, okay? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
In saying what he says here, when Jesus says that it all really comes down to loving God and loving your neighbor, he's not saying, hey, the rules don't matter anymore. He's not saying everything that has been said, right, all these rules that God had disclosed himself, they don't really count. He's not saying that at all. But what he is saying is don't forget that all those rules and all those commandments, all that stuff about worshiping God only and remembering the Sabbath and not using the Lord's name in vain, right? These are from the Ten Commandments. And all those rules about respecting life by not murdering and respecting property by not stealing and respecting the dignity of other people by not lying to them or about them. Jesus says all those laws and all those commandments which still stand, they were really about the whole time loving God and loving your neighbor, the commandments still stand, but you've got to remember at the heart of them, for as long as they've been given, it was all about loving God and loving your neighbor. They were given so that you could love God and love your neighbor. All those rules that can feel so complex and convoluted when you make it about checking them off as rules for like a good rule-following person, all those rules that by the rules kind of people love to make lists of and make sure that they're keeping Jesus, says it was never given with that intent. Those rules were not meant to be engaged that way. Don't turn them into a checklist for your life all along. They were meant to make your life less complicated, but more costly, right? Less, less complicated. You've made the law so complicated. It was given to make it less complicated. It, it's just about loving God and loving your neighbor, but that actually is more costly to live out. And why? It's because, because love is costly. Love requires commitment. Love requires faithful devotion. Love requires sacrifice and selflessness. Love requires wanting the best for another person, even when that might not be what they want for themselves. Have you ever been there? Right? That's a tough spot. Love requires persistence and service. Love, it, it's not always complicated to understand. I mean, it's something that parents do almost intuitively. I feel like I love my friends almost naturally. It's not always complicated. It's just, it's costly. It's hard to do. Jesus says the law, it was never intended to be complicated or hard to understand. It, it's hard to do. The law is costly because love is costly. It requires a lot from us. Now, I don't know about you, church, but that's certainly been my experience in following Jesus. I can say this from experience. Uh, love, right, showing the love of God, loving God and loving others, it's not something that's always been hard for me to understand mentally. There have been moments where I sincerely did not know what love would require in a situation, right? That exists. But I can count those moments maybe on one or two hands or throw in some toes, right? They exist. I've genuinely been perplexed as to what love means, how it works out, what should I do. It, it exists. But I can think of many, 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 many more moments where I knew exactly what love required, but didn't want to do it because it was too hard or it would require me to pick up a phone and make an apology or, or write a letter or send an email or admit that I did something wrong or give time that I didn't want to give. I thought I was going to lay at home this Saturday morning, but now they need my help. I mean, I, I've known what love looks like. My experience of faith has been less about how does love work out. I, there's been some genuine questions, but it's mostly been, gosh, am I willing to do what I know love requires? That's been my experience. I've had many, many more moments where I've known exactly what God would want 
when I've known exactly what love would require, when I've known precisely what would honor God and please him and show him love and show my neighbor love, but where I've disregarded it or done my own thing because it's too difficult, because love felt too costly or too hard. I don't know about you, church, but that's been my experience. And so what am I to do? What are we to do? What are we together to do to embrace what Jesus has said here? How do we become the kind of people that love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our might and love our neighbor as ourselves? Well, there are a few suggestions. I think first, we have to recognize that love of God and love of neighbor go hand in hand. Both these loves go hand in hand. That's what Jesus is trying to emphasize here by reciting these two commandments in response to one question. Remember, the legal expert asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus gives two answers, which is classic Jesus. But he's trying to show that these two things, they go, they go hand in hand. They go together. It's like uh, peanut butter and jelly, like biscuits and gravy, like Kathy Lee and Regis. Love of God and love of neighbor go hand in hand. And that is important for us to grasp. Because some people read this passage and they say, hey, hey, we're really good at, you know, loving our neighbor. We need to work a little more at loving God. And other folks will read the same passage and say, hey, we're, we're pretty good at loving God, but we, we need to work more at loving our neighbor. And I think both those approaches miss the mark. They're not quite getting at the heart of what Jesus is teaching because Jesus is teaching that love of God and love of neighbor go hand in hand. They grow together and they wither together. They strengthen one another and they will die out without each other. They they grow together. So if we want to grow in our love, our love for God and our love for our neighbor, if we want to respond to what Jesus has spoken today, we've got to think about love of God and love of neighbor together. They go together. We can't think of them in isolation. We must recognize that they go together. They're a pair. So how do we grow? How does this pair grow in our lives? How do we allow our love for God to fuel and empower our love for our neighbor and our love for our neighbor to strengthen and bolster our love for God? They go together. How do we do it? Well, I'm going to put it this way. We embrace the costliness of love. We embrace the costliness of love. Uh, which is fancy and pretty, but I could have just easily borrowed a slogan from our friends at Nike. Uh, We just do it. How do we grow in our love? We just do it. If we want to grow in love for God and love for our neighbor, uh, all we have to do is embrace the costliness of love by doing what love requires. Because love is a verb, right? It's an action, and it's, it's costly, In fact, it was Jesus who said to his disciples when trying to describe love that greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Notice Jesus says that it's costly, right? It costs a life and it's an action. It's something that was laid down for the friends. Love is a verb and it's costly. And so when Jesus answered the call to love, when Jesus decided to embrace the costliness of love, it led him out of heaven and down to earth. It led him to associate with people that no one liked and to challenge people of great authority. It it led him to pull away from large crowds at the height of his popularity when everyone's chanting his name so that he could go and be with his father in prayer. When Jesus embraced the costly call of love, it ultimately led him to his own death. It cost him his life. 
And church, if we want to follow Jesus, if we want to love how Jesus loved and love who Jesus loved, if we want to be the kind of people who embody and live out these greatest commandments that we've heard Jesus speak this morning, we need to be the kind of people who embrace the costliness of love, who decide that love for God and love for others, uh, that it has the right to change our schedule and change our spending and change our priorities. Why? Because love is what's most important. And it's not complicated. It's just costly. Right? When Jesus embraced the costliness of love, it cost him his life. When we embrace the costliness of love, it could cost us our reputation, right? or our comfort, or our preferences, or our Saturday mornings at home. But it will bring us precisely to the place where we're living in the very center of God's will for our lives. We'll be embracing the very posture and priority that Jesus modeled when he was at, on earth. When we embrace the costliness of love, we're, we're living exactly how Christ lived. And so church, for us to do this practically, what can we do in this next week? What are some practices we can embrace? Well, first, I'd like to invite us this week to rekindle our love for God in prayer and our love for others through action. And this is something I see happening seamlessly and simultaneously. So rekindling our love for God in prayer and our love for others in action. And just here's what I'm going to do. If you're anything like me, 2017 has been uh, kind of off to a sprint of a start. I mean, it has been a crazy month. I can't believe that we're already in the 20s of this month. It's about over. We just have a week left of Kelly's art up in this space. I mean, it has flown by for me. So what I'm going to do this next week is take 20 to 30 minutes, kind of 20 to 30 minutes of extra time in prayer with God to try to rekindle some of that love. It's been a sprint. There's some questions I need to ask God that are going to take a little more time. There's some things I need to talk about that I've been worried about. And so I need to rekindle some of that love for God in prayer this week. I put it on my calendar. Uh, it will happen, unlike some of the gym appointments I've scheduled so far this year. But it's happening. Uh, ask me about it next week. That's what I'm doing, rekindling my love for God in prayer. That's one step. And one of the questions I'm going to ask, so like I said, these two go together, rekindling our love for God in prayer and living our love out for others in action. So I'm going to pray. I got a list of things I need to pray about. But one of the questions I'm going to ask in prayer is, Lord, man, God, who's, who's one person that I need to love better? What's one relationship where I need to own love better? And I'm going to pause and just listen and trust that the Holy Spirit will bring someone to mind. Or I, I, I don't know how it'll happen, but I trust that God will say something or indicate somehow one relationship where I can take a step of faith and love. That's my plan this week. I'm going to rekindle my love for God in prayer. And then I'm going to ask God, Lord, what's one relationship where I can have a tangible opportunity to grow in love? And look, I trust that God will reveal that because it's what's most important. It's what he's put at the center of our faith. And then, third, I'm going to do it. What comes to mind, I'm going to do it. It's costly. Uh, I don't know what the cost will be yet because I haven't done this yet. But I'm going to do it. And why will I do it? Because love is a muscle. And it grows with use. And the more we demonstrate our love for others and engage our love for others, the, the, more, the better we get, quite honestly. And I need to grow that muscle. I need to work those muscles out. So this week, I'm going to connect with God in prayer to rekindle some of that love. And I'm going to take some steps of faith with real people to grow my love for others. 
Because I think that Jesus is right on it this week. Church, I think what we've learned this week is at the heart of our faith. Love is at the center. And though there are many other considerations, which I'm so glad we explore and know, again, I love that this is a thoughtful church. Underneath it all are these two commands. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. And it's not complicated. It's just costly. Will we be people who embrace that cost? Church, this week and every week, will you commit to being a person that embraces the costliness of love? I'm going to try. I'm on that journey with you. Will you join me? All right. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are just an infinite God. You are uh, boundlessly complex. You are above all our comprehension, but you have made it so simple for us. And that is grace. The heart of it all, there's not some mental test that we have to win. It's not ever been about our cognitive ability or our scheduling ability or our any kind of capacity. It's all been about one thing, Lord, love for you and love for others. So often I forget that. So often we forget that. God, would you make us a people of love? Would you help us grow in our love this week, both for you and for those around us? Lord, would you give us the courage to take those steps of faith when we feel your prick of love, when we know exactly what we should do but back away because it seems costly, Lord. We need your help to grow in love, but we recognize that it's at the heart of what it means to follow you. So will you help us follow you better? It's in your powerful name we pray. Amen.